Welcome everybody to today's B-Side. Joining me on the program is Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University. We're going to be talking about the ins and outs of what is now being called the Green New Deal. It holds a tremendous amount of promise, but as we always like to emphasize here on Dead Punnett Society, it's definitely laden with a lot of pitfalls and barriers and contradictions along the way. Matt Huber, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you have written extensively and researched on uh, climate change and the politics of a Green New Deal. You've written a really interesting Verso blog piece that I'm going to link to here in the show notes for sure to talk about some of the uh, lessons that people pushing for a Green New Deal need to learn from the actual New Deal. Right. And there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of controversy, man. If you get into the New Deal literature, you know, if you <laughs> if you if you take the the tact of, of the academic historian, mm-hmm. it is fraught territory, and there are a lot of debates to be had around that arena. So I look forward to discussing that with you today, as well. Um, another piece appeared. Uh, let's see, back in August, uh, it's called the Five Principles of a Socialist Climate Politics. So we're going to get the, through those principles piece by piece and cover this topic in some serious detail. But there's a we, we encountered a huge setback, I would say, in the democratic socialist movement in the past week or so, because it came out <laughs> that our Lord and Savior, Bernie Sanders, uh, is actually a massive hypocrite mm-hmm. uh, because the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail, you know, it has to be true. It came out of the Daily Mail, reported last <laughs> week, that climate hawk Bernie Sanders spent $297,000 on private jet travel in one month to stump for Democratic candidates. So uh, should we dis- should we discard uh, Bernie Sanders as as our leader at this point? Uh, is he a massive hypocrite? What do you make of this, Matt Huber? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. He, you know, put him in the dustbin of history now. Send <laughs> <laughs> so um, him to the gulag, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we have to be very scolding of our individual consumptive behaviors and jet travels, the worst you can do for climate. So <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I've, I've been uh, trying to get us beyond this kind of carbon footprint ideology and it is a trap to think about our contribution in that way, I think. So needless to say, that just started off with a little illustration there when the right wing media and the daily mail as one of the worst uh, proponents of, of those kinds of tactics on the right, when they can pick up your talking point and use it against you in a, in a very seamless way, uh, you know, you're probably not onto the right thing. So let's talk about exactly what Bernie Sanders has been up to, because he has partnered up with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other leading House of Representatives, uh, Rashida Tlaib and others uh, to talk about uh, fighting for a Green New Deal and what that might look like. They're arguing, trying to fight for a select committee. A lot of this jet travel that climate hawk Bernie Sanders has been up to for the past couple of months has been uh, spent uh, trips to places like Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, South Carolina, Colorado. He's involved in the election of a lot of these progressive and democratic socialist candidates that have been so inspirational. Tell us about Ocasio-Cortez and what she was up to in Nancy Pelosi's office a couple of weeks ago. Well, it was really kind of amazing. I mean, some as someone who was very excited by AOC's election and and her involvement with DSA and all this stuff. But uh, when she was 
won the primary, I, I never would have expected that like her sort of entry into politics on Capitol Hill would be on the platform of of climate and climate politics. But that's, you know, she was there in D.C. for the the kind of orientation training for new Congress people. And uh, she got word of the Sunrise Movement and Justice Democrats, which, you know, Justice Democrats played a huge role in her election. And uh, they were organizing the sit-in in Pelosi's office to try to demand the kind of bold action on climate that basically mainstream scientists are telling us is needed. And uh, I don't really know the backstory, but she jumped right in and joined the um, sit-in and gave a really inspiring speech. And, and now she's really kind of put this Green New Deal policy umbrella as kind of her her, her first shots. Uh, the first kind of big ideas she's advocating for are on this policy. Uh, so as someone who's a socialist and a DSA member, but also really my focus both for my research and politically is really on climate and energy. I was just so excited to see that's where they decided to, to really focus their energy at first. Right. It was exciting. And she's taken that energy and uh, she certainly hasn't let it dissipate one bit. Uh, she took uh, took part in a televised town hall in D.C. this past week with Bernie Sanders, uh, Van Jones, of all people, who's trying to rehabilitate his progressive uh, credentials there, I think, a little bit. Bill McKibben of yep. uh, 350.org, who we want to return to and talk about his role and the kind of discourses that he has purveyed as a leader in this climate movement. And of course, AOC took part in that as well. And she, I mean, she stole the show. I've seen yeah. some clips of that. Yeah. She is such a talented and passionate and genuine and authentic proponent of our ideas in, in DC. And I, I was giddy about her from the beginning. You know, I, I'm not going to say that I, I, you know, I was always, I always thought she would, would win. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, I mean, she is, it's nice to finally be, uh, you know, have your inclinations and your intuitions proven correct instead of being let down about a politician. Am I right? Yeah. And I, I would also add that I feel like Bernie's being pushed by the, this movement um, totally. because when Bernie ran in 2016, he didn't really talk about climate change much. And if he had much of a policy platform, it was pretty much the standard, you know, carbon tax. That was his big focus. And and I like to I like to point out a carbon tax is pretty much a neoliberal um, policy instrument that kind of puts faith in markets and price signals to solve this problem. Um, so he didn't really have much imagination on the kind of big, bold policies that actually would solve the issue of climate change. And um, I feel like he kind of got swept up by all this movement. And that's what spurred him to hold this town hall. And you could even tell in the town hall, he's kind of still learning how to speak about this in different ways. So, yeah, very exciting. It was it was fascinating to watch AOC kind of jump in Yeah, uh, yeah. immediately after Bernie would speak up, you know, because Bernie's just I mean, for better or for worse, the man's got message discipline like nobody. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, I mean, he, I, you know, I, I was trying to think of a metaphor or some kind of simile or, or uh, allegory or something. But I mean, he stands alone. He's he's a. There's, I can't I can't even think of anyone off hand offhand who displays the kind of uh, consistent message discipline that he does, which can be a good thing. But sometimes his, his message needs tweaking. And you saw AOC doing that in real time where she, where Bernie Sanders would jump in and talk about jobs, jobs, jobs. And right. AOC would very gently sort of push, you know, jump in and say, ah, yes, and not just jobs, but jobs for people who are the most marginal and oppressed in our society. 
Yeah, right. Because that is true. That is the case that mm-hmm. something like a Green Deal would inevitably uh, not only, you know, produce jobs for this kind of mythical white working class that the mainstream press likes to fetishize. Yes. But uh, such a new deal would illustrate the fact that the the working class as it currently exists is always already racialized and uh, heavily gendered in various ways and uh, mm-hmm. representing various ethnicities and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see her tweak his discourse in real time. And uh, I hope this pays dividends going into 2020. Yeah. And we would be we would be remiss in talking about a carbon tax without mentioning the Gilets jaunes in, in uh, France right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, while it's needless to say, I think the mainstream media's rep- representation of this unrest occurring because of a simple tax or whatever, like it's a you know, conservative reactionary tax revolt. I think that's way off base, but you're right to point to the fact that these carbon credits and these tax policies point to a neoliberal agenda that uh, working people are starting to see through. Right. Uh, in a big way. Uh, any thoughts about the Gilo Jaune and the carbon tax that they're reacting to in, in some small part anyway? Well, it just shows, I mean, a lot of the people that talk about and think about climate policy think it's just sort of this technocratic problem where we need to just sort of tweak the incentives of a system and you just sort of, you know, change the price signals and change the economic signals to the market and then things will sort of seamlessly shift in the ways you desire, the most efficient outcomes, as they like to say. But it just shows, you know, politics and people will interfere in those technocratic schemes. I mean, these are people who, you know, middle, lower income people who are already struggling in a eurozone that's going through this austerity, and and a, and a president Macron who's passing tax cuts for the various uh, the richest in that society, and they sort of think they can just like, oh, we'll just raise the price of these fuels, and then we'll solve climate change, meet our Paris obligations, everything will be fine. And it's not surprising that there's mass protest to that. And the thing that really gets me about these types of policy mechanisms is they basically fall right into what the right is saying we want to do with climate policy, because, you know, we tend to talk about the right. Their big problem with climate is they deny it, which is true. (laughs) They're denialists. They deny the science. But what they mainly say about climate change is that it's going to cost you. It's going to cost jobs. It's going to cost the economy. It's going to cost poor people. I have this quote I use from Charles Koch, of all people, where he's like, I'm worried about poor people who pay a third of their income to energy. Like they're going to they're going to be hurt by these policies more. So the right is saying these policies are going to cost you and your family and and jobs. And then the liberal technocratic climate policy people sort of answer with, yep, (laughs) Uh, we're going to pass these policies that actually do cost everyday people more and uh, impose costs on, you know, the everyday reproduction of people's lives. And that's not a way to win a program or to win a kind of political movement to solve this kind of really existential crisis of climate change. So, Right. I mean, I think, you know, lest we just sort of write this off as a, a Macron kind of, a, a, you know, center right neoliberal kind of approach, Nira Tandon tweeted out at the beginning of when the Gilets Jaunes sort of movement started sweeping the international media and people sort of caught wind of it. She said, you know, I can't believe that progressives and leftists in America think that something that, you know, is essentially a reaction against the carbon tax is a good thing. 
Yes. You know, this this is uh, near a Tandon uh, would have been Hillary Clinton's chief of staff had she been elected. She uh, orchestrated large parts of that failed disastrous campaign. And she is the head of the Center for American Progress, right. which it has its own carbon tax. Uh, you know, what are they calling it? Uh, the cap and trade uh, sort of is that still being bandied about? They have their own policy in that respect. So here she is saying, you know, these people should shut up and take their medicine. Right. Uh, don't they care about the climate? It's just, it's a, it's a degree of tone deafness. That's yes. just astonishing. Yeah. And it's just, again, it's just sort of, it's amazing to me. These liberal technocrats are just continually aghast when the masses of people do things that they think they shouldn't, or <laughs> yeah. like, you know, vote for Trump or, <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or revolt over an increase in the price of a fuel they really rely on in their everyday lives. So, you know, there's this very much idea that, if these people knew the truth of climate change, then they would obviously realize they need to pay more for fuel, right? They would, you know, if they were better informed on the science, they would know that, like you said, they have to take their medicine. But uh, that's not really how politics works, you know. Uh, you pass policies that hurt people, they're going to be upset. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I mean, it's one thing about, uh, I'll just say this and we'll move on to more substantive things. But, uh, you know, it's funny how mainstream economics sort of treat, uh, you know, they notoriously treat human beings as mere inputs in economic calculations. Right. And it's, it's so... It's so incredibly amazing and and I would say rewarding. I don't know. It just uh, what's the word? Schadenfreude, perhaps, is the one that comes to mind. You know, mm-hmm. it's just fucking awesome, Matt. When when you see people rebelling and and demonstrating to these uh, economists that you know we're human beings, we're not right. just inputs. Well, yeah. So much of what I see climate policy is structured by this idea that there's this realm called the economy that cannot is really not subject to any political intervention. And the best we can hope for is to kind of, again, tweak the incentives or change the price signals and hope that this market system will kind of work itself out on its own. So, again, that's what's kind of exciting about the Green New Deal is where people are finally realizing, like, the science is telling us that we actually have to transform this thing called the economy (laughs) and this this system we call the economy. And that's going to – and politicizing the economy is – is something that a lot of neoliberal technocrats are not even used to even thinking as possible. So it's a real shift in how we're thinking about how to approach this. That's right. So the last time prior, uh, I guess the most notorious time that people rose up en masse and declared their humanity and, you know, made themselves actors in the course of history rather than just its passive victims was in the early 1920s and 30s. And that's where your piece, your Verso piece, takes us back to uh, in order to learn some lessons about how something like a Green New Deal is going to have to be integrated in mass social struggle rather than these kind of elite policy maneuvers, you know, as if it were uh, the product of some kind of chess game. So you point to a number of really important aspects uh, that we're going to need to learn from. So uh, in that piece, your first point is that the New Deal was made through mass working class protest and revolt. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk to us a little bit about the point you raise wherein, you know, it wasn't just FDR's benevolence that brought about the policies like the National Labor Relations Act and the Social Security Act. It required a number of work stoppages and uh, labor disruptions along the way. 
you know, it's pretty clear that the labor movement in U.S. history has had its ups and downs. But most people would agree that sort of the highest period of labor militancy and strike activity and, and mass revolt was during this 1930s. I cited some data, you know, there was in 1934, 1,856 work stoppages involving a million and a half workers, which was the, the highest count in several years. I mean, workers were shutting down San Francisco for four days. There were strikes, the sit-down strike in Flint. There's all these massive disruptive revolts really forcing the people in power to kind of pay attention to the demands of these movements. The, the unemployed councils that Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward talked about were doing like really mass disruptive sit-ins of welfare offices and other types of areas. So these really progressive gains that the labor movement made and that led to the welfare state and social security really only happened because you had this sense that the that the, the system was sort of falling apart and that if they wouldn't answer these massive revolts, they would be in trouble. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So it's even, even more so than pressure politics. It was the I, uh, the attitude and the idea that if the government can't do it, if the bosses won't do it, uh, we'll take up and do it ourselves. A number of general strikes in places like Seattle, mm-hmm. um, you know, proved that uh, workers had the capacities and the potential to overthrow the ruling class, economic and political classes altogether and do it themselves. The lesson of the Russian Revolution uh, was still very much on the minds of elites in the U.S. and, and across the West. And so uh, I think you're absolutely right to point out in this piece that uh, we're not going to see the kind of quasi-revolutionary action that occurred in in the New Deal without that kind of protest and revolt. Do you see that kind of emphasis in the climate movement right now? Is there a growing recognition or acceptance that we're going to need integrated kind of working class institutional pushback? I think there there's... There's a good recognition that we need to start doing this kind of disruptive direct action politics. And that's been a longstanding tactic amongst environmental movements from like tree sitting to blockading pipelines to, you know, we saw the heroic actions in Standing Rock, Keystone. There's been a lot of understanding, even someone like James Hansen, like, you know, has got arrested trying to stop a coal fired power plant. Mm-hmm. NASA scientist uh, James yeah, Hansen. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of understanding that we need to start kind of putting our bodies on the line, shutting stuff down. But um, these movements are kind of dispersed and scattered. You know, there's nothing <laughs> like worker strikes <laughs> and, and working class disruptive politics that is perhaps has a little bit more power to shut these systems down. Thinking of what, you know, Jane McAlevey, her work to show that basically strikes are weapons that the working class can use to build power amongst the working class. And as amazing as Standing Rock was and amazing as all these direct action climate tactics, including the sit-in in in Pelosi's office, which is sort of disruptive, (laughs) you know, like it's nothing compared to the West Virginia teachers basically shut down the entire school system (laughs) in the entire state and forced a, a government of West Virginia to answer to their demands for uh, better health care and better salaries. And they basically shut down an entire crucial system of social reproduction. And by the way, they were calling for higher taxes on fossil fuel companies to pay for their better salaries and their health care. So I think the climate movement needs to sort of make these kind of 
alliances with the labor movement and with a working class movement that can kind of channel these climate demands into more strike activity and more working class revolt that can actually have the potential to really get the people in power to pay attention to them. Right. I think that's uh, spot on, but I have one concern that I think I want to sort of carry throughout the course of the rest of the episode. And it sort of came to mind a little bit when I was talking to a friend of mine about how how impressed I was with the Green New Deal and how I wanted to sort of launch into, you know, do a couple episodes here on DPS and start thinking more seriously about how this could really uh, kind of resuscitate the socialist movements in the United States and and take on on the right in in a new sort of way. And her immediate response was, well, Adam, I didn't know that you cared about the climate that much. And I, and I sort of, th- I thought, you know, my immediate response was, and I'm sorry to tell you this, Matt, as a guy who uh, takes on, you know, climate politics or what have you, but I'm a good socialist. I care about the climate. But, but my immediate response was, well, I don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not the point, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, you know, when I say I don't care about the climate, what I mean is that, you know, uh, I've never, you know, I've never chained myself to a tree. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't vacation in the Colorado Rockies and, you know, I'd rather be on the beach than, uh, you know, than up in the, up in the, up in the mountains somewhere, to be honest with you. But then again, right, the beaches uh, are relying on climate change as well. But what I, what I was pushing back on is this, you know, understandable kind of knee jerk feeling that you have to be a certain kind of person. Right. In order to care about the climate. And what I was suggesting is that I think that the Green New Deal is doing something far more important here, which is changing up the kind of way that you imagine that the climate sort of impacts our politics. It's not some kind of it's not a bunch of crunchy kids being bussed into D.C. to take a rest. Yeah. Um, It's something that's far more integrated into our culture and society and our our sort of uh, political calculations that we make every single day. But with that being said, here's my sort of challenge to you for the rest of the, the episode here. Is it possible that we're do, that we're pulling a bait and switch by equating this with the with the New Deal? By what act of transmogrification here <laughs> do we move from you know uh, forcing the, the the labor movement to have the same kind of passion for climate change as they did for say? their own jobs, livelihood, and social security, and right to unionize, and all the rest of it. What are the mechanisms by which we're going to really integrate the working class into this project? I mean, it's great that the millennials are engaged, the zillennials, what, yillennials, whatever the hell we're calling them. <laughs> but how do we get the rank and file union members to really buy into this project? Absolutely. And I mean, if anything, the rank and file union members, a lot of them have been against a lot of these climate movements and actions. Let me uh, take a lot of that in a few pieces. <laughs> the first the first thing is, I mean, if you follow the science, it's the climate is not something, if you're a socialist or not, climate is not really something you can care about or not care about. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's existential, and I really mean that in the, the real sense of the word, that we're really talking about, you know, the dramatic, we're talking about the livability of our species on this planet. And I don't mean to say that in a kind of kumbaya, we're all in this together as humanity type of way. But in a very real sense, I think um, there's the climate change is a real threat to basically human civilization. And that includes <laughs> the beaches, which will be inundated <laughs> with uh, sea level rise and, and, and they will be gone. You can't be on them. So you'd actually be better off in the mountains. 
So you're saying I so you're saying I don't have to shop at Patagonia in order to give a shit about the environment. That's what you're uh, suggesting. Yeah, here. yeah. And but I totally agree with you that to this point it has been a certain type of person that cares about environment, cares about climate change. And particularly my work, I'm working on a book for Versa that someday I'll finish. <laughs> but it's basically at looking at class and the climate and climate politics and one of the parts of the book I want to focus on is that Basically, climate politics, the movers and shakers in climate politics really fit into a class profile that you could call the professional class. And I go back to Barbara Ehrenreich and John Ehrenreich. They coined this term, the professional managerial class in the 1970s. But your listeners will enjoy, actually, um, Pulansas wrote a book about classes in contemporary society in the in the early 70s. And he, he actually coined this term, the new petty bourgeoisie, to to talk about this kind of new rising white collar professional knowledge workers. And he really focused a lot on how capitalism sort of divides manual uh, work from knowledge work or mental work, as he calls it. And so this kind of uh, new petty bourgeoisie that focused on credentials and higher education and making a career for yourself and building this kind of middle class existence through the knowledge economy, this kind of professional class, which really exploded in the post-World War II era with the kind of explosion of higher education. Um, these are the, you know, type of people who tend to be the real, like I said, movers and shakers in climate policy discourse. So whether you're, you know, a journalist or an academic or a scientist or some other kind of government technocrat or nonprofit manager or something, you know, they're all kind of share this kind of class background. And the certain type of person that cares about climate politics, like I said before, they really want to make it about knowledge, a politics of knowledge and belief or denial in the science of climate change, which is not something that I think really translates to the, the masses of people. Again, even in a country like the United States, like a third of 33% of our country has a BA from a college institution. You know? So, you know, I, I've been looking at statistics, you could probably roughly estimate this professional class. It's somewhere between 25 and 30% of the country. Um, so there's just not a real basis through this professional class politics that, that focuses on knowledge. It also, I would add, it focuses on what I call carbon guilt, this kind of, yeah, this kind of sense that, you know, our own consumption is complicit and driving this climate problem and that we really need to scale down and subscribe to what your former guest Lee Phillips calls eco austerity or ecological austerity. Right, um, yeah. You need to recycle your orange peels and uh, your, your uh, <laughs> egg shells and, and that'll, that'll, that'll make a compost in your backyard as well. Literally um, reduce, reuse, recycle is the mantra of the environmental movement and reduce is the first word. That <laughs> and isn't it funny that this comes in a, period of neoliberalism, the environmental movement grew up in the same period of neoliberalism where the right was saying, you know, we've we've gotten too ambitious with, you know, this welfare state yeah, and, this, yeah. uh, you know, these high wages for union workers. So we need to basically cut all these government programs. We need to cut unions. We need to destroy. We need austerity across the board. And then you have an environmental movement that also calls for consuming less reducing exactly so so this certain type of person that tends to care about climate is has a limited capacity to really reach the kind of masses of working people 
for these reasons. So I totally agree with you. What's pretty exciting about the Green New Deal discourse is they're actually making this an economic program. They're talking about a federal job guarantee being wrapped up in this massive infrastructure build out to transform our energy economy. And um, that would actually finally <laughs> go beyond this this unending jobs versus environment sort of conflict and conundrum environmental politics always finds itself up against this idea that if we're going to save the environment, it's going to cost people's livelihoods, it's going to cost people's jobs. So, and it doesn't have to be just jobs. I mean, if you start to look at the climate problem, you start to see that the core of it is around energy, obviously, which everyone uses in their lives. <laughs> Food is big, wrapped up. The agricultural system is a huge contributor to climate change. So the food system and housing is another big one. And so if we start imagining a socialist politics that starts to decommodify and basically create a platform where it's about giving people a human right to healthcare, but also housing, energy, food, the things people really need in their lives, you can start to see how this climate problem can start to be framed in a way that does appeal far more broadly than the typical kind of professional class person who's who's woke on climate and, and knows how many parts per million there are in the atmosphere and knows all the science and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, it really does sort of uh, find itself expressed as a, as a culture war of a sort, you know. Um, so when I say that, you know, I don't care about the climate, what I mean is that I don't, I don't like the people who do oftentimes <laughs> I find them to be smarmy and obnoxious and for fuck's sake, Matt, I'm a socialist, man. I'm down for, for fighting climate change and the, and the big polluters and transitioning our economy and decommodifying, you know, various aspects of life and society and just letting people run free and wild. But, you know, it seems to me that a lot of people just, you know, want to go into the Rocky mountains and smoke pot. <laughs> and wander in the in the in the forests and streams naked all day long and sort of wear their love of nature as a kind of cultural marker of self yeah uh, more so than they really actually care about systemic and comprehensive uh, political and social and environmental ecological change right and so you know i think i think the most important thing is i sort of point to kind of in my in my sort of tongue in cheek way here is just to say that the most important contribution that I think that we need to produce here in, in, in fighting for a Green New Deal is to transcend this stupid culture war identity sort of markers and bearers that people sort of uh, wear these things on their chest. They get a tattooed on themselves for fuck's sake. And look, if you've got an environmental ecological tattoo, rock on. <laughs> uh, but you damn well better be fighting the coming po apocalypse that you know we find ourselves in rather than just sort of uh, frolicking through the woods on LSD or whatever. Right. <laughs> you know, I think any viable environmental or climate movement is going to include these kind of hippies and college educated <laughs> knowledge workers and yeah, yeah. it's going to include them, but it's just not enough to have mm -hmm. them. You need a, a much broader base of support. So, yeah, that's right. We are apparently pro hippie punching on DPS today. I don't know. I apologize to people for that. I'm not usually like this. I'm, I'm not doing much to help my image as this kind of, uh, uh, whatever. Anyway, I digress. So your second point here is uh, that the New Deal was built on an antagonistic politics of wealth, redistrib wealth redistribution from the rich. So we've already started to talk a lot about this, but um, let's get in the, into these specifics. Uh, what do you what do you mean by that? So um, the New Deal, obviously, 
I, I quoted the famous quote by FDR where he talks about how the rich are unanimous in their hate for him and I welcome their hatred. <laughs> yep. And uh, they hated him for pretty good reason. You know, he this is the period where massive tax rises on the rich were passed. I mentioned the Revenue Act of 1935, which I was just looking into this. It was referred to at the time as the soak the rich tax, <laughs> which <laughs> that's so that's so 1920s and 30s. I love it. Like you that, can imagine like the bad guy voice that Dave Chappelle talks in like, yeah. we're going to soak them. See, we're going to soak them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I just feel like uh, we we lack that kind of antagonistic politics because so from a climate perspective, obviously, there's the corporate polluters, the fossil fuel industry. I like to also bring up, you know, massive industries like cement. It's responsible for 7% of global carbon emissions. The steel industry is hugely responsible. So from a climate perspective, it's actually the rich corporations who are most responsible there's a statistic that people keep citing, like something like 71% of emissions since 1988 has been caused by 100 companies. <laughs> so it's basically very clear that this problem is the responsibility of the rich and the corporations. So we should make our politics about really blaming them and redistributing wealth from them to build this new energy system. But even from a, I mean, the New Deal wasn't just an energy policy, right? It was a massive redistributive project that was about taxing all of the rich, not just the the fossil, not just the corporate polluters or not just the, the carbon intensive industries, but a massive project of wealth redistribution. And that's what it's actually going to take to to do the kind of transformation of our economy that's necessary. It's going to take a whole shit ton of public revenue to actually accomplish the changes that need to happen in the 12 years that the IPCC says we need that we have left to basically radically transform our economy. So to get massive amounts of public revenue, the best way to do that is to pass really, really progressive tax policy, which, by the way, has been completely eroded since really since the 1970s in this country. We've been passing tax cuts on the rich over and over again for the last 30, 40 years. And that starved the fiscal coffers of the public sector. And it's basically starved the public sector's ability to take on a lot of the massive challenges we face. So um, if we want to solve climate change, it's going to have to be public sector led. And to do that, you have to really have funding and you have to have really redistributive tax policies. So one thing I've been saying, it's sort of a little slogan <laughs> that I've come up with is that if you want to solve climate change, you shouldn't be taxing molecules. You should be taxing the rich. And, yeah, and exactly. I was going to put, I was going to point to that because I think it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us exactly what you mean by that in terms of what, what is the strategy to tax molecules right now? Well, that's what the carbon tax is. It's a uh, carbon dioxide is a molecule. <laughs> a molecule doesn't have a class interest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the thing about carbon dioxide is all of us, all of us actually use carbon based products, all of us to some degree emit carbon dioxide. So when you frame it as a carbon tax, you frame it as a tax that's going to really be imposed on all of us. And um, we're all going to have to pay this tax. So when you talk about taxing the rich, you're talking about a much more a policy where they are going to pay 
for things to fund what we all need. So this is, again, to bring this up again, the West Virginia teachers were calling for exactly that. They're calling for higher taxes on the fossil fuel industries that run their state in West Virginia and saying, you guys need to pay for us teachers to have better salaries, better health care. And so we have to tax them to fund us. And um, that's a much more, I think, uh, popular type of policy move to talk about taxing the minority of people responsible for this problem and using it to fund things that benefit the masses of people. So the other example I like to bring up is that even though Bernie didn't really have much of a imaginative climate policy, he basically advocated this carbon tax. He did have this idea that we're going to tax Wall Street to fund free college for everyone. Um, So that was not a tax policy that people thought was going to affect all of them in negative ways like the carbon tax might. That was a tax policy that antagonized the rich Wall Street bankers to fund something everyone would like, which is free college for, for all. So by framing this in those terms, you can start to build this kind of, to use Jeremy Corbyn's type of language, like we are the many, they are the few, you know, like, you know, taxing the few to fund the many should be, is a much more popular platform to go with, I think, than this sort of vague, abstract carbon tax that is just sort of about changing incentives and price signals that technocrats love. So that was really a, like a Michael Scott, uh, the office kind of scenario there that you just pointed to, like uh, Michael Scott quoting Wayne Gretzky saying you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. <laughs> so we've got we've got Jeremy Corbyn quoting Percy Shelley claiming we are the many there the few anyway uh, yeah i should i I should realize that that's not jeremy corbyn's original thought that that phrase (laughs) (laughs) that's fine he can have whatever he wants at this point he can uh he can claim that he discovered gravity uh i'll I'll let him have it um anyway i digress uh Getting back to the piece. So we've laid out the substantive socialist case. One of the things that you do in uh, your other piece for the climate blog that you contributed to um, was make a a more explicitly class oriented socialist appeal to uh, climate politics, because that is not uh, a given in an outlet like that, where there are other types of uh, perspectives, uh, liberal and otherwise. And so, you know, my audience is not going to require you to explain the centrality of class. And political change, right? Um, if they are, I don't know. They got lost on their way to Vox uh, or something <laughs> like that. But I think one thing that we do want to do here is give people a little bit of the terrain of the existing actors and forces and institutions when it comes to climate change, because I think that we have a tremendous amount of baggage and wrong-headed strategies and ideals, uh, ideas and ideals, both to overcome if we want to promote an explicitly socialist orientation here. Uh, One of my fears with the Sunshine Movement is as inspired as they are Mm -hmm. and as active as they are, if they're organizing around the wrong set of ideas and ideologies, um, all of that desire is going to amount to not nothing for sure, but very little. Mm -hmm. I think we as socialists, very serious embedded democratic socialists need to emphasize time and time again that uh, social change doesn't happen just because you want it bad enough. Uh, You have to combine the desire with the right strategies and ideas. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the leading figures in the climate change movement. Where have they been? Let's start with, say, the the, the year 2000 and Al Gore, the inconvenient truth. Mm -hmm. 
let's start there as the kind of birthplace of the modern climate change movement. Yeah. Uh, what was Al Gore? What did he represent? And uh, where have we moved since then? Well, you know, Al Gore was the vice president under peak neoliberal Clinton administration. Um, and I think he very much represented that kind of approach to environmental policy. So he wrote a book in 1993 called Earth in the Balance. And right in that book, he advocated, you know, putting a price on the environmental consequences of our actions. And he was really gung ho about these market based policies that basically try to price environmental bads to, to allow the market to kind of seamlessly deliver us a solution. Um, and then moving on when passed into the 2000s, obviously, the inconvenient truth was, I think, a very sort of it epitomized this kind of, again, this kind of professional class approach to climate po- climate politics being about knowledge and presenting the science. You know, you had Al Gore showing his PowerPoint presentation where he's sort of being lifted to the sky with that sort of crane system to show how high carbon emissions have gone up or and to show these graphs to the public. I actually haven't seen he has a sequel, an inconvenient sequel. But um, Kate Aronoff, who's an amazing climate writer, she wrote a review of the, the sequel that basically called his approach to climate the West Wing model of climate policy change, where it's essentially Al Gore's like on the phone with various diplomats and other leaders of, of states across the world and trying to negotiate this kind of very big deal in Paris that's going to solve all our problems. So it's a very kind of top down idea that these elite policy level state bureaucrats and, and technocrats and and diplomats can all kind of get together and hammer out a compromise and solve this global crisis. So it's it doesn't get us very far in actually challenging the capitalist system and the people actually responsible and, and the people who continue to profit off burning carbon to make money, <laughs> which is the real problem we are facing. So, so let's talk about the move away from that inconvenient truth model. It seems that a lot of people were inspired by that particularly in the early Bush years when, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to hold on to if you found yourself both disenchanted with not only, obviously, the Republican Party a neocon disaster that was unfolding in front of your very eyes, but uh, the Democratic Party pushback as well mm-hmm. was pretty weak and just banal and milk toast in their, yep. in their um, attempts to challenge it. And so 350.org emerges in that soup of reaction to the prevailing uh, status quo uh, situation. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So 350.org is, you know, it's done an amazing organizing, particularly building coalitions um, with uh, what are called the kind of frontline movements, the indigenous peoples and the small island states that are really imperiled, like directly from climate change right now, you know, a, a country like the Maldives and the South Pacific are, you know, literally their, their island's not going to be around for um, much longer. So, so they've done a lot of her, uh, a real sort of grassroots organizing and so forth. You know, I, I do find issues with, again, not to be too nitpicky, but the, naming, your, naming your organization 350 is essentially, let me ask you, do you even know what that means, 350? <laughs> 
Um, it's something about parts per million, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Right. But that's, but that's, and it, you know, and that's, I think I heard that once, like, you know, 10 years ago. And <laughs> but I'm still not exactly sure what it means being uh, not a climate science nerd myself. Exactly. So 350 parts per million is essentially what James Hansen, again, the, the, lead, the lead climate scientist, said is the level that we need to get to to be at a safe kind of climate. And we're right now at like 411. So it's really terrible where we're at right now. But naming your organization, organization 350 basically puts, sci- again, puts science and, and understanding of parts per million right at the core of your politics. And that's, again, not something that, you know, you start telling people about parts per million in the atmosphere and their eyes glaze over pretty quickly. So it's still, I, f- I feel like, sort of in this kind of messaging about climate is a struggle over the science and over knowledge and, and so forth. And so well, you're saying like you don't go to the bar and order your beer in like uh, parts per million. Like <laughs> how many parts per million of that Bud Light over there um, would you like to have? You start talking about uh, ABV, dilly dilly, you know, like that's, you mean that's not what the, the normies are out there doing all day long. Maybe if you translate it into ABV, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's 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 not it's not something a lot of people can get their heads around. It's performing the stereotypes that people all, already thought about, you know, the, the science climate nerds out there, the libs and their obsession with, you know, facts and figures exactly. and uh, that are probably all lies anyway because of the liberal media and fake news. Yeah. And um, and they, as you pointed out, they really came into the the activist space around 2007, 2008, just after An- Inconvenient Truth came out. And then you had the election of, you know, again, exactly what climate activists were hoping for this sort of enlightened, very articulate President Obama, who believed in the science of climate change and talked about it in his, in his speeches. And But, uh, you know, nothing really happened in eight years to, to actually solve this problem. And, and in fact, under Obama's watch, we saw the biggest boom in oil and gas extraction that some people say in this country's history. The U.S. increased its oil production via fracking to an incredible extent over the last decade, and most of which that was during the Obama administration. Before the, before the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, Obama was proposing to, to do offshore drilling all along the Atlantic seaboard. Like he was, in fact, Obama himself just bragged about the increase in fossil fuel extraction in the United States that so-called increased our, our energy security. He said, that was me, folks, <laughs> and taking yeah, credit exactly. for it. And by the way, uh, American energy production, uh, you wouldn't always know it, but you know, it went up every year I was president. Um, and you know that whole, suddenly America's like the, the biggest oil producer and the biggest guy, uh, that was me, people. I just wanted you to, so, so, uh, <laughs> it's a little like, you know, sometimes you go to Wall Street and folks would be grumbling about anti-business. I said, have you checked where your stocks were when I came in office and where they are now? What, what are you talking, what are you complaining about? Just say thank you, please. Um, and not to mention also, I would, this is something um, Christian Parenti brings up a lot. But in 2007, the Supreme Court ruled in a, in a case, Massachusetts versus the EPA, that carbon dioxide was basically a, a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. And therefore, it was perfectly uh, under the jurisdiction of the EPA to regulate CO2 
as a pollutant and as a dangerous thing that's, you know, threatening the human health of society. And so what Obama could have done in 2009 is come right in, you know, guns ablazing, <laughs> and he could have imposed a, you know, EPA, very punitive regulatory framework to solve this climate change uh, problem. But what he did instead is say, no, I don't want to do that. It's too heavy handed. It's too, you know, using too much executive power. So what I'm going to do is try to pass legislatively in Congress this kind of milk toast cap and trade legislation that will set up this incredibly complicated system of trading emissions credits that is, as we've learned, is very prone to corruption and fraud. And then, of course, he got crushed in the midterms by the Tea Party, and that legislation died and never was to be heard of again. And only in 2014 did he bring up the Clean Power Plan, which was finally what he should have done in 2008, which is to use the, the EPA to regulate the electric uh, utility industry and these emission-intensive industries like refineries and steel and cement and to, to basically use state power to force them to stop destroying the climate. And he tried to do that in 2014 is when it really started to get going. And But, you know, we know what happened next. <laughs> he lost, or, or sorry, Hillary lost in 2016. And, and very quickly, Trump has basically reneged on the Clean Power Pro Program. And, and we're basically back where we started. So I would have hoped that 350 could have somehow found a way to push Obama in those early years to do much more transformative types of, of things. I think Christian Parenti's thesis there is really fascinating. I had him on DPS uh, last year and he made the case here that, uh, you know, in, in a very real sense, we already have a very robust regulatory apparatus at our disposal. All they have to do is start actually enforcing exactly. something, exactly. anything, really, you know, fucking anything, just enforce it, just pick something, pick one thing and enforce it. They have, we have the legal institutional authority to regulate capital as a state, right. as a set of institutions that, that are meant to do that. We've been doing that since day one. Right. Uh, you know, of course, something like a Green New Deal would require a much more robust institutional transformation. It would have to, it would be nothing short of what uh, Bernie Sanders calls a political revolution. Yes. But, uh, but it's, it's important to point to, to the fact that we already have these means at our disposal and sort of obfuscating this in, in cap and trade and in these difficult kind of uh, tax policies and plans uh, really uh, functions as a way to kick the can further down the road and distract from the fact that the shoddy existing state that we currently have right now already has many of the capacities required yeah. uh, to implement these. And those, those policies were passed under the radical administration of Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he, you know, the clean air act and the clean water act were passed in the early seventies as, as well as the formation of the EPA. And it, it created this, this regulatory infrastructure that actually worked. <laughs> it did unbelievable things in terms of cleaning up air and water quality in this country. And now you can argue a, a, a lot of outsourcing of dirty industry globally has also played a huge role. But um, it was a very kind of hands-on state-mandated regulatory program that forced industries to, you know, basically invest in technologies that would make their processes cleaner. And it worked. And uh, now the problem was in the 80s, a bunch of people started to call those policies command and control policies, which were seen as heavy handed and bureaucratic and 
rigid and, and, and inflexible to the demands of a global competitive market. So the neoliberals sort of took over in the environmental policy game and they started saying, well, we don't want to do that kind of heavy handed state top down stuff. We want to kind of create these little flexible market based uh, incentive programs that uh, tweak systems and allow prices and, and markets to kind of solve these on their own. But again, it sort of it took away from the conversation an idea that the state or regulatory power has the ability to even intervene or, or affect the economy in any, any sort of dramatic way. So we have a lot of options at our disposal. I think some of the helplessness that people feel, uh, you know, there's, it's, you know, I mean, I think it's a completely rational impulse when you're thinking about a global apocalypse to feel helpless and uh, a little dizzied by that prospect. The end of humanity as we know it is not small potatoes, but at the same time, you know, that helplessness should be, uh, should be, uh, tempered quite a bit by the the knowledge that we have a lot of capacities at our disposal already. So let's wrap up uh, this interview by uh, I want to pick your brain about some of the strategies that you might see something like a group like DSA or just socialists across the country uh, wielding in order to fight for a Green New Deal. Something like the the project uh, that DSA in particular has launched in favor of Medicare for all immediately comes to mind. Yep. Uh, I don't know if you thought a lot of a great deal about this, but offhand, what are some of the tactics and strategies that you foresee in terms of uh, taking this on in a serious sort of way? Yeah, I'm, I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of years about how can we find a kind of Medicare for all like strategy on climate? Because the what's so powerful about Medicare for all is it's very simple slogan. <laughs> it's a it's a clear set of benefits to people that they can clearly understand. And it also, you know, is might not put this out front, but it's also, like I said before, antagonizing a particular class interest in the healthcare industry and saying we need to basically wrestle control over the system from those private for-profit capitalists. So I've been thinking a lot about how DSA and other left organizations can kind of build up an even broader program that does focus on decommodification of basic needs, of people's basic everyday needs. And basically, if you start to think about calls for a right to health care and a right to housing, um, you can also, and I talked about this before, you can talk about a right to food and energy. And when, when we're talking about the climate problem, it's an energy problem, and we really need to dramatically transform the electric system and the transport system. So moving towards more public transit and moving towards basically, you know, like taking over our energy system as, a, as basically nationalizing it as a public utility, which sounds crazy now, but Again, during the New Deal, like there were very serious conversations about basically just taking over the entire energy system as a public utility and running it as basically for the public good rather than just for profit. So basically, you know, on climate, what we need to do is we need to dramatically shift our energy system to renewables. And that's going to need a lot of infrastructure to happen. It's going to need a lot of new transmission lines. It's going to need massive solar farms it's going to need massive wind farms built everywhere and so if you start to if you start to take that process under 
the public sector and you start to give people jobs through this system, building up this new energy system. But also if you start to make this build out about not just changing the energy system, but also offering cheaper or even free energy to poor and working class people, then you're going to get a lot of popularity for it. You know, again, a lot of this technocratic approach to climate change has this idea that if we make fossil fuels cost more, it will make renewables more competitive. There's a sort of assumption that renewables have to always be costly and um, we need to make fossil fuels less cheap. But the sort of reverse of that could be to make renewables so cheap that fossil fuels are no longer competitive. And so to build out a public sector-led renewable energy infrastructure system that is built on the premise of delivering cheaper energy to the masses of people. And that's something actually, that's what people need is cheaper energy. You know, you have a lot of families now, you know, like 40% of the country has, uh, you know, if they had a $400 emergency, they would be broke (laughs) if they had to go to the ER, if their car breaks down. So people are deciding whether or not to pay their heating bill or to pay their electric bill or to put food on the table. So, but you know, again, to do that, you really have to wrestle control over the energy system from the people who are trying to profit from it, which are the fossil fuel industries, the electric utility industries, uh, to the extent that some are private for-profit utilities, heavily regulated. But, uh, and again, this is, you know, this can be about delivering energy to the people. So in the same way that Medicare for All is about delivering free healthcare to the people, you could talk about delivering free energy to the people. And then you start to build up a program that can build a lot of mass popular support, regardless of whether or not they understand 350 or if they understand the greenhouse effect or anything like that, they can understand, they can understand uh, cheaper or free uh, electric utility bills. And so this larger program of decommodifying people's social needs can, can really start to build just not even just climate. This is this would be a large scale socialist working class program that's trying to build political power through these very simple to understand materially beneficial programs that benefit people. That's right. It's often said, you know, in the midst of the New Deal, you go down to some of the backwaters in Kentucky or Tennessee or down south and uh, they sure as hell didn't like FDR. They didn't care much for even the Democrats in many respects. Um, and they saw FDR as this kind of elitist you know, Northeastern liberal, you know, uh, who didn't understand the real salt of the earth type that they were, but they sure as hell liked uh, the TVA. Yeah. They sure as hell liked all that electricity that those dams, you know, produced. Yeah. And, you know, all of the, all of the new deal programs they benefited from, they sure as hell had a lot of affinity for those. And so they might not have liked, you know, FDR the man, but you could see how the new deal really transcended the culture war. Yeah. And and brought it down to the material interests and the needs of the majority of people as the main main determinant here. And one final question here, highly speculative, but it's one thing that I'm very interested in myself thinking a lot about this in terms of maybe even writing about this in the coming months. If I have time, Lord knows that's always a challenge. But uh, it seems to me that uh, Thomas Piketty has recently uh, written a study suggesting that if you look at the trends since 1940, at least. We are overdue, perhaps, in America and across the uh, the Western world for a certain kind of party realignment. 
Um, and and I think this is one of the aspects of the New Deal, the the actual first New Deal, uh, the, the second New Deal rather, but the the actual New Deal. You get it. Um, <laughs> is that uh, it? It it really provoked a serious party realignment. The the Democrats prior to the New Deal were certainly not the Democrats in the 1960s. Um, you saw the the revolt of the Dixie, what would become later known as the Dixiecrats, the Southern planter class, the Bourbons who were still in the Democratic Party dating back to the U.S. Civil War. And you saw a massive party realignment and a shakeup in terms of which social and economic classes uh, and which ideas were represented in, in which party. And I think one of the real promising aspects of a Green New Deal is how it could achieve a very similar type of thing. Yeah. Have you thought a lot about that? And, and I'd be curious what those thoughts might be. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say to what you were saying earlier is in terms of the scale of transformation in the South or all in throughout the sort of rural areas of the United States in 1934, I've seen this either 10% or 20% of American farms had electricity. And by 1950, it was 90%. <laughs> so you're talking about a massive, you know, full electrification of the countryside in about 15 years. And it's funny, that's exactly the scale of transformation we need to think about to solve this climate problem. Um, But in terms of the realignment, I definitely see a lot of potential in this because I think, again, part of the neoliberal era is not only kind of the corporate takeover of both of the parties, but also this kind of apathy and disengagement from politics by the mass majority of people, you know, voter turnout goes down, you know, people have lost hope that politics or politicians can even do anything for them, really. And for good reason, because (laughs) neoliberalism has been basically about this sort of substantial agreement between the two parties on a whole host of neoliberal economic policies. So I see a lot of hope to you know, if the Democratic Party can find a way to harness this kind of working class message that, you know, is offering real broad suite of benefits and healthcare and jobs and public transit and things, you know, people can really tangibly feel that very easily the Democrats could turn out that kind of extra. If you think about the 50 percent of people that don't vote in elections, you know, most of them are poor working class people often people of color. So you turn out kind of an, another 10, 15% of that multiracial working class voters, and you can see a sort of realignment towards uh, kind of working class left politics. And again, it's not, it, we got to get over what you said earlier, this, this idea that the working class is this basically white men who work in coal mines and work in factories. So the working class, I was reading Kim Moody's book that just came out on New Terrain, I think he's saying like these these logistics clusters in Chicago, something like, you know, 75 percent of the workers in those warehouses are people of color. <laughs> you know, you have women and the teachers, the, the teacher strikes, you have nurses, you have people in retail fighting for 15. And so it's a very multiracial type of movements that are happening immigrants, too. You have, uh, in my city of Syracuse, one of the most active labor organizations is a worker center that advocates for immigrant workers' rights on dairy farms all over the state, where they're horribly exploitative of these uh, immigrant workers. 
So you have a very kind of bubbling energy amongst these this low wage, precarious amount of working class people. And uh, I, if you start to see a politics that can actually speak to those people's needs and material interests, I think you could you could see a kind of re- realignment. And unfortunately, the the sort of liberal centrist Democratic Party thinks this realignment will happen just by demography. <laughs> right. The demographic bomb. Yeah. Like it's just going to happen naturally without having to actually stand for anything or offer people anything in the way of policy. But I, I'm a big believer that um, if you actually can start to build a politics that has clear messages, that can stand for broad material benefits for the mass of people, you can start start to shift that. And I mean, you don't have to look too far, but to really, it's ridiculous that Bernie Sanders won 23 states. Yeah. <laughs> he won 13 million votes. And basically, he won on on just going out there and saying very clear things about how, you know, the rich run our system and we need to fight them and we need to offer the mass of people really easy to understand benefits. Yeah, I mean, he won 23 states and yet 50 percent of Americans still don't fucking vote. Yeah. So imagine the potential there, the un, the vast untapped potential in the midst of what's already a, a fairly successful, uh, you know, uh, a fairly successful demonstration of the value of democratic socialist ideas. He won those 23 states in a primary, which is even I mean, the voter turnout for primaries is I don't know what it is, but it's like 25 percent, maybe it's incredibly low. Um, so. And Bernie said this throughout the whole, and he continues to say this, you turn out more people, you win. You win real positive political things when you can just turn out more people, get people more excited about politics. Isn't it easy, uh, you know, in a sense, easy, but uh, heartening, at least, to know that uh, the people out there want to vote for you. They want to push for you. They want to fight for these uh, policies. Yeah. You just have to enable them and empower them to fight for what they will at the end of the day know to be their own interests. And uh, I think the Green New Deal has a lot of promise there. Uh, any, any final parting words uh, for the listeners before we sign off here? The only last thing I'd say is like the Green New Deal also would fundamentally be a kind of socialist project of expropriation. <laughs> right. Absolutely. That's that's the piece that we're waiting on here. Right. <laughs> this isn't just about uh, rehabilitating capitalism. We have to find a way to uh, systematically overcome it. So what, what, what's your take on that? I mean, it, by decommodifying social needs, it's essentially saying we're going to take away the provision of those needs from private for-profit capitalists. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think, you know, you go to the barricades and you start talking about expropriating the expropriators. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it might not be tangible or sellable right now, but you start, you start talking about just offering people access to the, to free access to the things they need in their lives, like housing and healthcare and energy and food. It's a way to kind of get to the socialism through the back door, maybe. <laughs> but ultimately, what, I, what I'm proposing and what I think a Green New Deal could be about is, is about sort of slowly taking the energy system under public ownership, which really is about expropriation. And um, I think the climate crisis is dire enough that that seems like a reasonable thing to do, because basically we've had three decades of hoping and waiting for the private sector to solve this problem through the profit motive. And it's just not happening. (laughs) 
So you have to, we have to find a way to kind of take over this system in the same way that the government kind of took over the economy in World War II, you know, like they didn't allow the market or the profit motive to figure out how to defeat the Nazis. <laughs> they, you know, like the, the whole, the emergency was such that they decided that the entire economic system was going to be taken over with different ends in mind, profit not being the most important. Right. Well said. I mean, in, in parting, I think my my big my excitement about something that would look like a Green New Deal, a movement that would lead to a Green New Deal, I should say, because really we're talking about the, the kind of movement, and the kind of political revolution that would be required to bring about the Green New Deal, not the policy itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that kind of movement would produce and realign the kind of subjectivities across the nation mm-hmm. and in a much more socialist direction. I mean, I, I really do. You know, I think. I think, you know, Maggie Thatcher got one thing right, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, neoliberalism was in her calculation about changing people's souls, <laughs> changing their their what's inside of them, their their internal calculus, their calculations about who they are as people and where they stand in relation to others and, and, and self and the world. And, you know, a, a kind of socialist trans transformation is going to have to take up a very similar type of project. How do we realign people's very subjectivity? into a more socialistic kind of uh, communitarian direction. And I think that, you know, not only decommodifying, uh, but connecting people together yeah. in, in a common uh, aim to achieve the very things that they need to survive in the world and thrive in the world. Moreover, thrive, right? Because survival is never enough. Uh, it shows a lot of promise to, to sort of uh, setting people on a socialist trajectory. Exactly. And you don't have to pipe marks over the loudspeakers to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because people will absolutely, I almost said naturally, but you know, we be careful with that word, but I will say it, fuck it. People will naturally bend in a collectivist direction. If, if these circumstances, you know, lend themselves to it, people like to thrive and survive and, and live enriching, um, you know, productive lives, I think. Yeah. uh, One, I'll just say one other thing is, the New Deal, as many people, many socialist critics will point out, was fundamentally about saving capitalism and um, maintaining the kind of private enterprise system. <laughs> but more than that, it really was using massive public investment and public energy to build what we now call like suburbanization. <laughs> and, and, and so it used the public sector to build a highly privatized system of living and working and reproducing people's lives in the suburbs in this kind of highly isolated, privatized, you know, driving in private automobiles to private single family homes. And, and what's really interesting is it, so it built, used public money to build this privatized system. And then a couple decades afterwards, people had forgotten about the public basis of this system. And our politics became much more focused on, you know, like, it's all about just me and my family as Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as society. It's just individuals and families. And, you know, the problem with my life is these, this government trying to tax me. And, uh, you know, so we really have to keep that in mind. If we're going to have a green new deal, you, you don't want to, uh, use the energy of public oriented solidar- solidarity and politics towards building a system that will just then reinforce a highly kind of privatized market logic. You need to kind of build in public systems of solidarity into the geography of these infrastructures itself. 
All right. Very well said. A lot to think about. Matt Huber, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punish Society for this chat. I've enjoyed it a lot. You'll have to come back on when your book uh, with Verso is <laughs> reaching completion. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Baby, baby. Yeah.